Happy New Year, my sweetheart church. I don't think it's too late in the year to be able to still say Happy New Year. Glad to welcome you this day. Hope you enjoyed an extra 30 minutes of sleep. Aside from Jesus himself, there is no more prominent person in the Gospels than a guy named Peter. Mary Magdalene gives him a good run for his money, but, but Peter's probably still the guy. He was given the name Simon, but Jesus gave him a nickname, Petros, in Greek, which means stone or rock. He was the original rock, I just want to say. Simon Peter was not this guy. <laughs> Every time the disciples are listed by name, Peter's name is always the, the very first name. That means something in the scripture. He was unquestionably the leader of those 12 apostles. Many of the most beloved stories in the Gospels feature Peter at the center of them often because he's so brash and so outspoken and tended to act before he thought. You could see why he would be a favorite of mine. He is kind of the patron saint of activists whose motto is ready, fire, aim. That was Peter. That was Rocky. It was Peter who left the boat to walk on the water toward Jesus. And yes, he began to sink because he looked at the waves, but he walked farther on water than any other human being had ever walked. It was Peter who rebuked Jesus for predicting his own crucifixion, which was pretty gutsy. And it was at that point that Jesus gave him another nickname, Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan, he said. It was Peter who had the idea of building three cabins on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration so that Moses and Elijah and Jesus could hang around together a little longer. At which point a heavenly voice said, basically, shut up, Peter, and listen to my son, only Peter defended Jesus when he was arrested in Gethsemane. He was obviously not a swordsman, he was a fisherman because he only hacked off the guy's ear, but he tried. And it was Peter who boasted that no matter what anyone else do, would do, he would never abandon Jesus. That even if it meant his death, he would be willing to die for the sake of his Lord. And, and then he denied even knowing him three times. And he was crushed in his shame and his guilt. No one blew it more than Peter. But honestly, no one dared more than Peter either, when you think about it. And Jesus obviously saw something special in this brash fisherman because he just kept coming back to him, kept restoring him, kept believing in him. So if we want to get an insight into what it means to be a fatally flawed but fully forgiven person on mission for Jesus, you could hardly do better than Peter. Alas, we only have three New Testament documents from him. We wish we had more. One of them might surprise you. It's the Gospel of Mark. But it was Peter's reminiscences that John Mark wrote down. So when you're reading fast-paced, short, terse Mark, that's Peter talking. But then the other two are the first and second letters from Peter. They're near the back of your Bible, if you don't turn to them very often, just a little ways in front of Revelation. And 1 Peter is what we're going to spend some time on for the next three months. 1 Peter was written to Christians who were experiencing discrimination and even persecution uh, in and around the world. Uh, in 64 AD, Emperor Nero ordered Rome to be burned down 
so that he could rebuild Rome to his own glory. It was kind of his version of gentrification. Naturally, the Romans who were living there at the time were furious about it, and Nero, noticing this, decided to make the Christians the scapegoats. He blamed them for it. And because his poll numbers went up after that happened, he doubled down and decided to be more abusive to the Christians. And so he began to persecute them. Mid-60s, all this was happening. He ordered, for instance, Christians to be soaked in tar and tied to poles in his yard and set on fire to be the lamps for his garden parties. He wrapped Christians up in animal skins and threw them into the arena to the lions and to the wild dogs to tear them apart for the delight of the publics who had gathered there. It was increasingly dangerous to be a Christian under this maniacal Nero, and Peter knew that. In fact, Peter would experience it. Shortly, Peter would be executed by this Nero. I'll tell you more about that next week. And so, as he saw these, these turns of events, he wrote a letter to encourage Christians, uh, Christians who were trying to be believers in an increasingly antagonistic world. We are Christians who are trying to be believers in an increasingly antagonistic world, aren't we? And so we might do well to listen to what Peter has to say to us for the next few weeks. We're going to start this morning right at the beginning, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. This, even this passage is so full, so chock full with thick theological words, it's hard to know where to begin. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. You see the Trinity there? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. If you listen carefully to the opening words of this letter, it's where Peter was writing it to a group of Jewish believers, because it is full of Jewish trigger words, words that Jews would immediately identify with. For instance, that first line is, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. That's chock full of Jewish trigger words. Let's look at the word elect. The Jews considered them to be the elect, the chosen people. They called themselves the chosen people of God. They were the elect of God. That's a very Jewish word. The elect exiles. We talked through our our sermon series on Daniel about the Babylonian exile, which had happened about 700 years earlier. It was one of the defining moments in the history of the Jews who were carried off, most of them, to a foreign land to live in exile. 
elect exiles. And then there's another word that he talked, he uses, dispersion. The Greek word is diaspora, and this was directed to the Jews. It was the word that was used to describe how Jews over the centuries had been scattered through exile and persecution throughout the world. God used that, by the way, when it came time to proclaim the gospel, because every time Paul went to a town, there was a group of Jewish believers who were ready to hear how their Messiah had come. So, elect, exiles, diaspora, dispersion, all of those are Jewish words. There's one more that's a sneakier one, inheritance. That was also a very Jewish word. The Jews considered the land to be their inheritance. Jerusalem, the temple, that was their promise. That was their legacy given to them by Almighty God. That was their inheritance. And so you read these words, elect, exiles, diaspora, inheritance, all of them are Jewish trigger words, and you would swear that he was writing to a Jewish audience. What is fascinating is we discover later on in the letter that he's not writing to Jews. He's writing primarily to Gentile believers, to non-Jewish Christian believers who were, ex- who were experiencing life in a, in a patently unbelieving world. Christians at this time more and more were being mocked and discriminated against. Christians who were being treated disrespectfully. And in some cases, they were being persecuted. More would come in the decades to follow. But in some cases, persecuted unto death. So Peter took these powerful Jewish images, but he applies them to the non-Jewish followers of Jesus. And in the first few lines of his letter, he makes a bold assertion. The Christian church is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham and to all of the Jewish people down through the centuries. The Christian church is the fulfillment of that. He appropriated all of these Jewish promises to a very non-Jewish audience in a very difficult situation. But you might say, so what? Especially if you're not like me, if you don't care about the history stuff, you might really say, so what? What difference does it all make? Well, because we are that audience. We are that non-Jewish believing audience in a very similar setting. We believers in Jesus live in an increasingly unbelieving world, an increasingly hostile world. Like Peter's audience, we may not yet be experiencing full-blown government-sponsored persecution. But we are long past the days when being a Christian was considered a culturally appropriate and beneficial thing to do by most in your society. Folks my age or so remember a time when being a member of a local church was part of good citizenship. Whether you were really a believer in Jesus, you at least pretended because it was good for business. Not today. The idea of being a cultural Christian is all but disappearing. In fact, recent polls suggest that 29% of Americans consider themselves nuns, not N-U-N-S, nuns, as in they don't believe anything spiritually. They have no religious belief of any kind. This compares to 3% in 1957, the year after I was born. Nearly a third of our nation, the nuns now are more numerous than the evangelicals or the Catholics, the next two largest groups. So like the time of Peter, our society is increasingly antagonistic 
toward those of us who identify as believers in Jesus Christ and try to follow his ways. I want to be careful about this, though. It is easy to overblow this, to overplay it. And I think many Christians do, frankly. It is easy to use the language of persecution to describe how Christians are being treated in America today. And I think it's an abuse of the word. Because there are 340 million Christians around the world who know what persecution really is. They are experiencing extreme persecution. Last year alone, 4,600 global Christians were martyred for their faith because they are Christians, they were killed. Almost 4,300 others were arrested and nearly 4,500 churches were attacked. That's persecution. And that's not what we are facing in the United States. For the present, at least, American Christians are still relatively free to worship as they choose. But let's not be naive. Our American religious liberties are eroding before us. Some state governments have used COVID as a pretext for restricting religious gatherings in a discriminatory manner. Christians who are running for public office or seeking to be appointed to judgeships are now being subjected to truly discriminatory uh, ridicule in their examinations for their religious beliefs. Christian universities are being threatened to have their, rev- their accreditation revoked because they are Christian. And secular universities more and more are kicking Christian organizations off of their campus like InterVarsity. Or in some cases actually suing them because they dare to require of their officers that they actually believe the things they say they believe. More and more cities are caving into legal threats by removing nativity scenes entirely from Christmas. Or as in the case this last Christmas in the Illinois State House, they allowed a nativity scene, you'll see a picture of it right there, and then walk right around the corner, take a look at, see the little white thing in the distance? Here's a close-up of that. That's a display of a satanic deity called Baphomet in a crib. It is a satanic nativity obviously intended as a mockery of the Christ child. And so while Christians were singing Christmas carols in front of the nativity, around the corner, the Satan worshipers were saying, Hail Satan, Hail Satan. Now such mockery is certainly protected by our First Amendment, but it illustrates the continued degradation of Christianity's favored status in the United States. In short, We may not yet be experiencing full-blown persecution as Christians in America, but we are increasingly held up to derision. And those who dare to take an unwavering stand on certain long-held, honored biblical views such as sexuality or marriage or the crazy idea that gender is not a choice, that you are either male or female and you're born that way, those who hold that position are subject to charges of hatred and intolerance. And if this is true, if what I say is true, and I see you nodding your heads in agreement with me, if we declared Christians find ourselves in a less and less hospitable environment, why should it surprise us? Jesus told us this would be the case. Jesus said, if the world hates you, 
Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15. So if Jesus is right, and really, would you like to bet against him? How shall we then live in a time as this? And I think we can start with 1 Peter. Because like his original audience, we are believers who, even if we aren't being persecuted, we find ourselves in an increasingly antagonistic and even hostile society towards the things we hold dear. We can identify with Peter's audience of believers in an unbelieving world because that's exactly who we are, and increasingly so. And so I, I think we would do well to latch on to some of the things that Peter taught those Christians 2,000 years ago. And this morning, I want to take a look at just two ideas that come out of the very first verses of Peter, Peter's letter. First of all, he says, you are chosen. I want you to let that just sink in. You are chosen. Peter addressed this letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And this language of election, it seems a little strange to us, particularly because we Americans like to think that we are in control. That we live according to our choices, that we are the captains of our own fates. Even when it comes to our Christian faith, we tend to believe that we are Christians because we thought of the idea, because we decided to accept Jesus. But the Bible clearly teaches, even the passage I just read out of John 15, I chose you. Do you see it? The Bible clearly teaches that our sovereign God chose us. He elected us. He called us. He initiated with us before we ever thought of choosing him. And I know this raises questions about free will. Are we just spiritual robots then? And the answer, of course, is no, because the Bible also teaches that we must respond in faith to the invitation of Jesus. But it is always, always Always God's initiative that begins this process. Always God's election. For God so loved the world. When John writes world, he means organized humanity against God. John writes, for God so loved the world while we were organized in our opposition, while we were rebellious, while we were hating him. He so loved that world that he sent his son to us. He initiated. Emmanuel, we talked about. He chose us. He chose us out of love to be his, his children part of his family. God chose you. That is a great comfort. I hated the part of school recess where teams were picked. Maybe you did too. Because it was always the two coolest kids, and I was one of neither, who were always the captains, and then the rest of us stood there hat in hand, hoping that we'd be picked, hoping we'd be picked pretty soon, and really hoping we wouldn't be the last ones picked. Well, God's pretty cool. And he's picked you. He chose you to be a part of his family. I had a woman who came up in tears after the first service. She said, I'd never thought of it, the fact that God chose me. God has chosen you. Can you imagine a greater honor? Or a greater delight? Or a greater comfort? Because if our relationship with God is dependent upon our choosing Jesus, 
then we could just as easily unchoose Jesus if we get tired of him or angry with him. But our salvation is secure precisely because it is grounded not in our wavering, vacillating moods, but upon the unwavering, unchanging will and purpose of God. He chose you. He chose you. This is my last will and testament. We just had it redone. I keep it in my safe and another copy of it with my attorney. And in it are contained all of our instructions for how our inheritance is to be distributed among our children, our grandchildren, our sweetheart church. You're getting a chunk. This document represents the total accumulation of my wealth and the legacy that I hope to leave. Only it doesn't. Not really. In fact, every single thing contained in this document will one day disappear. Every material thing that I pass on to my heirs will one day fade away. But Peter goes on to remind us that our inheritance as the chosen children of God Our inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It is not a legacy of wealth or property. It is a legacy of life and love and relationship. It is a salvation purchased for us by the blood of Jesus on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead. We are the chosen children of God. And we've been written into his will. We are the heirs of the king of kings. And that is an inheritance that no one can take away from us, no matter the culture that we find ourselves in. So it's a first word of of encouragement and comfort to believers in an unbelieving world. We are chosen by God. But then comes another word right next to it that seems odd next to it. It's exile. You are elect exiles. Another word for exiles is sojourners or wanderers. And at first, when you look at that, it doesn't seem that that's very comforting at all. I like the elect chosen part, that exile part. What about it? Here's the deal. The Bible is clear from beginning to end. This world is not our home. And that is actually good news. That is actually good news. Even for those of us who who find where we live here on the Ketsap, the, the Gig Harbor Peninsula to be a pretty good place. We think that we've hit the venue jackpot. It is still nothing compared to the house that is being prepared for us by Jesus. We will be citizens of an eternal spiritual home someday that will make this look like the Calcutta slums. And if you don't find this life to be that great for whatever reason, if you are struggling with cancer or the loss of a loved one or divorce or singleness or poverty, take heart. Because Peter says, you're only a sojourner here. You're just here for a little while. This is only a temporary trial. And particularly in this pandemic era, when every voice in the media urges us to be terrified, terrified of COVID, terrified of each other, terrified of Omicron, whatever we're told to be frightened. 
We Christians need to remind ourselves of what we claim to believe. This is not our home. We are only passing through. It does not diminish at all the pain that many of us have suffered or have suffered vicariously through people that we love who have experienced this terrible disease. But it does and it must put all of this in perspective for us. We need to be put into perspective on this whole COVID thing. Yesterday we memorialized Roger Roach who died from COVID. Tragically, we prayed the Lord's deliverance and he chose to deliver him in a different way. It was grievous to all of us. And yet his wife, Jeanette, got up and she declared that this place is not Roger's home. That as much as she will miss him and as, as valuable an impact he had on this world, he has now gone to be with the Lord to a place where there are no more tears, no more sickness, no more dying. He has gone to his eternal home. Whether you love your life here and are clinging desperately to it or are weary of this life and longing for something more, Peter reminds us we are only exiles. We're only passing through. We just embarked on a new year, 2022. Honestly, we have no idea what this year might hold. We thought 2021 was going to be a turning point, and that didn't pan out so well. And yet, for those who had eyes of faith, we were able to see God's hand at work in some really powerful ways. So no, we don't have any idea what 2022 might hold for us. Just as Peter's readers didn't know for sure what their future held. Was it persecution and discrimination? Would it be blessing and prosperity? Who knows? But the point is, Peter would say, it doesn't matter in the long run. We who love Jesus, we who have been chosen by Almighty God, we may be exiles for a time, we may wander for a time in a desolate place, but we are heirs of a legacy that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And beloved, it is time for us Christians to start living as if we believe this stuff. Let's pray. God, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for choosing me. Thank you that you looked down and you said, that, that boy needs saving. And you came to me and you called me to be your son. And thank you that everyone in this place who loves Jesus can say the same thing. You chose us. How amazing is that? Please remind us, Lord, that that we are exiles here, that we are only wanderers, that we're just passing through. Please deliver us from the anxieties that come from grasping desperately to the things of this world, including our very life. Teach us to release our grip on everything that we think gives us security and to cling only and desperately to Jesus. Lord, we pray for an epic 2022. We pray for a year of health and prosperity and blessing. We pray for advances 
in your kingdom and for the growth of your church and for an impact upon our world, for a turning of hearts. But if not, if this is another hard year, if blessings are few, if hostilities increase, if pandemic spreads, embolden us nonetheless. Remind us that we are your chosen children, your heirs, and that our legacy is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and eternal. Would you remind us of that? joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.